1: Caregiver SOS On Air. Delighted to have you with us. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil. Now, we're going to jump to our special guest, Jessica Zitter. She's a critical and palliative care specialist and author, producer, and director of Caregiver A Love Story. And I was mentioning to her off the air, and we'll give you a link to it as well, that I had a chance to look at the trailer for Caregiver A Love Story. Uh, And in uh, two or three minutes, that trailer runs. I had tears running down my face. It's so... Powerful, it got me more than an a t and t commercial does and and those can jerk you around as well <laughs>
2: more than, so, more than a hallmark a hallmark more than a card. hallmark I had, same, I had the same thing happen I was like Ugh.
1: exactly but it,
2: but it, and, but in a good not the bad way the good way
1: the... so uh, Jessica as a a physician a master's in public health, specializing in critical care and palliative care medicine uh practicing at a public hospital in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, how did you come across this story and, and get involved in producing that incredible film?
3: Oh, well, first of all, I just thank you so much for having me here and for letting me sort of uh, bring this message and this film to to your audience, which sounds like a really important audience. Um, you know, I was not intending to make a film about caregiving because to be totally frank and honest with you, and it's a little embarrassing to say this, I didn't really know much about family caregiver burden. I didn't know about this rising public health epidemic that has been completely exacerbated during the times of COVID and it really was while I was filming this friend of mine, Bambi, this amazing woman, um, as she was dying, and I thought the film was really going to be something about a beautiful death at home and how wonderful hospice is, and it was really only after she had died and I was looking at the raw footage that I realized it was really her husband's story that the one was the one I felt was most important to tell. Uh, she was this dynamic, dynamic character, but ultimately it was her husband whose story was so compelling and important, and as a doctor. Um, I felt was the most important story for me to bring forward.
1: Who, who was he and who is he?
3: So Rick um, Rick and I still see each other frequently. I just saw him the other day. Um, he is a member of my synagogue. I see him uh, many, many weeks. Uh, and his wife, Bambi, uh, was another person. I used to see her frequently at our, in our community. And um, I knew that she was sick. And as she started to deteriorate, this must have been now, I mean, because she died... Um, probably four years ago now. So she, this was, you know, five, six years ago. I would sort of see her in synagogue, and I, I knew she was sick, and she talked to me about it. But she, she hadn't really um, started to declare herself. And one day she called me, and, and just from her her bed, and said, "I'm I'm so sick. I I don't want to go on living. I'm I'm so miserable." And I went over to see her, and as a palliative care doctor, the first thing I did was snap into action and talk about her goals of care and understand that she was realized that she had come to the end of her therapeutic options for this cancer and she was ready to try hospice and so we brought hospice into the home um and everything turned around and was so positive so quickly um and it was filled with love and laughter i thought let's let's film this it's an inspiration and so that then uh we started filming and and rick Allowed us into the home, she allowed us into the home and um, and, and that 's how the story happened so, so she died now a few years ago, and Rick has really been a part of this film coming to birth and, and sort of seeing how it 's impacted many audiences and I think he 's feeling like proud that his his experience has been a guide for many others and it's, hopefully we 're going to get it out to see you know to many other audiences uh, so that we can start to educate the, the physicians and the hospices and the legislators and the employers and all the people who need to understand. What is really going on with a family caregiver in this country?
1: Well, when he stepped in, uh, asked her uh, to marry him, she already was uh, literally near or on her deathbed, struggling with... uh, uh, terminal cancer th- did he understand what he was getting into
3: well no actually that's not not that's not the case when, when they decided to get married she was in remission and th- they assumed that they were going to be okay as he says in the movie he says you know i thought we'd have at least another 10 years and uh, things deteriorated quite rapidly and it was honestly a surprise to both of them a- and
1: he suddenly becomes 24 7 caregiver
3: right and, and you know the thing that, that was amazing about watching this film is that you know, what Rick uh, goes through is it's, it's over nine weeks, but when you think about the average caregiver in America is doing this for four and a half years, and you could sort of you just watch Rick's life deteriorate physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually. He's just run down to the point of really struggling, and when you think that he was really one of the lucky ones, it really puts everything in perspective.
1: Let folks know who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and we're talking about an incredible story. Dr. Jessica Zitter with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, a critical and palliative care specialist, and is indeed very much involved as produ- producer and director of Caregiver A Love Story, which paints an incredible picture of uh, Bambi and Rick uh, in their uh, uh, final time as she slips away and he provides her care. Carol.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, you, you talked about nine weeks and uh, a lot of that. It surprised me for, to hear that it was only a nine week period because it is visible, you know, in the film. You can see the difference. Um, and, you know, we we have seen that kind of a difference come you know, either direction where you talked about the hospice coming in and how everything changes. And it was such a positive thing. And we've seen caregivers come back to life. So to speak, and look much better, and the person they're caring for do much better. Um, and so, it I think that you know, just listening to you, you know, that there's there are things that can happen to a person on hospice, to a caregiver that really make a difference, that make it worthwhile, right? To yeah. find out what your options are.
3: Yes, yes, and it's a it's an important point because you know, in this film, hospice is a character in this film, right? This is a woman who. This is a man, Rick, Rick Tash, who is a caregiver for a woman who is on hospice. We have to put in context the fact that the vast majority of caregivers in America are not qualified for hospice, because to be qualified for hospice, you have to be six months away from death. So that angle of support of a hospice service being in your home is only available to a small number of caregivers. But even, and I think this is a very, very important point, even for those who do have access to hospice, There's a lot of misunderstanding in, and you even see me in the film have a moment of shock to understand that hospice really isn't there to provide some of the types of support that a caregiver needs. And that lack of understanding is really important because otherwise it leads to distrust and people saying, well, hospice isn't working and hospice isn't doing. Hospice did a great job for Bambi and Rick. Bambi could never have been home without the support of hospice, but hospice is paid to take care of the medical, durable medical equipment, all of the types of things that are really essential to maintaining a person's sort of physical ability to be in the home and to live in the home but in terms of things like changing diapers and and doing laundry and helping to make sure there's food in the fridge that is not the purview of hospice some hospices might have some volunteer hours but most hospices don't and people need to understand what they do and what they don't get from hospice so we just want to kind of i think educating the community about that is really really important at one point in the film you see me say Well, Rick, you just need to ask hospice for more support. And he looks at me and says, yeah, I asked them. And what they gave me was another 45 minutes a week. And my mouth hangs open. Here, me, a palliative care doctor, sort of realizing that I had this this unrealistic view of what it is that hospice actually does for you. And so I think it's just, I think that's another messaging piece here from this film is to really have a clearer understanding, realistic understanding about what is hospice going to give you. It's a lot, but it's not all the things that a caregiver needs.
1: You answered the question I was going to ask, what did you learn from all this? And obviously you got a better understanding of hospice.
3: Yes. And I love hospice, so please, you know, my fear about this film was, I really hope this isn't going to in any way throw hospice under the bus. Because hospice is really an essential, essential piece of the puzzle of allowing people to die in their homes, which is where the vast majority of Americans want to be able to die. We need hospice. We need to support and maintain hospice. People need to trust hospice. They need to count on that service. But what we also need is to fill out all the things that are outside of the purview of hospice, with some sort of safety net type of situation, whatever that might be, whether it's the community stepping in, whether it's, you know, local, state, or federal government stepping in with more services, there's lots of things that we need to do, whether it's your employers stepping in, but we've got to, uh, you know, fulfill all of support, all of those other needs that are not supplied by hospice. Well, I I think that you're in, in safe hands with us You know, what
2: I find is that most caregivers have gotten so little help that whatever hospice does, (laughs) they come in. It is it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to happen. And we encourage all of our caregivers, if they're in a situation where they're eligible for hospice, to please ask for it sooner rather than later. There's just too many people that nine weeks or three days or one day. I, I keep hearing, oh, I had hospice for a day. And that that's just unfortunate that they found out about it so late. Absolutely. I
1: remember years ago, my brother, who was caring for my mom in Cleveland, Ohio, I was in San Antonio, he called me and he said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is hospice fired mom. She's gone beyond the six months. And the bad news is hospice fired, hospice fired mom. They did get an extension and she died within a month or so after that. But I'll never forget him saying six months ran out how could they do that to me
3: wow wow you know i I had a call from someone else in our um in my community um the other day who's a physician who is a very sort of savvy person luckily has plenty of money um and this person's wife has uh, very advanced and rapidly progressing dementia and um this person didn't really know much about, to my surprise, about caregiver support. They have the money to have caregivers on, and there's 24-hour caregiving support, a person coming in and doing sort of housekeeping and a lot of the things that Rick didn't have support with in the movie. Um, but just a lot of the other types of, of uh, things that might be available to this this person, you know, he didn't know about. So even even people who have more money and who are well-established don't necessarily know how to navigate this caregiving world. And I think that we, one of the other things we need to do is we we need to kind of really clearly create navigators and clear hubs for information for the caregiver.
1: Several years ago, Carol remembers this like it's yesterday. We interviewed a Harvard University professor and an MD who became a caregiver overnight for his wife who had no idea what to do. Nothing uh, was going right and finally, one of his students said to him, Professor, there's help available. You can get some help. And he ended up writing a book about it.
3: Wow, interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, I mean, there's a big, st- first of all, you may not know that there's help. You may not have the energy or the time to look for help. You may feel too stigmatized to ask for help, right? You know, the, the the fact is you think you're supposed to want to do this work. You're the, I'm, I'm her loving daughter. I'm his loving wife. Why would you, you know, complain about it or ask for more help? Like that's your duty. And I think that that stigma is one of the things that we need to try to undo so that people really can move forward and ask for the help that they need, because it's not going to help anybody if people start to burn themselves out.
1: We're going to pick this story up in just a moment. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Jessica Zitter. She is a palliative and critical care specialist, also the author, producer, and director of Caregiver, A Love Story, and it is an incredible film. We'll tell you how to get more information about that as well. Thank you for listening and staying with us. We're not going anywhere on Caregiver SOS on air. Happy New Year, by the way.
3: Thank you so much. You too. Listen, I-
1: Happy New Year to Dr. Zitter. I'm Ron Aaron. For those of you who are Jewish celebrating the end of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, just around the corner as we tape this show, uh, we're delighted to have you all on board with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline with Dr. Jessica Zitter, critical and palliative care specialist and author and producer and director of Caregiver, a, an incredible love story. And you were telling us about uh, how people who fall into caregiving, and that happens more often than not, don't realize what help is available.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we don't have, you know, I, I'm actually doing, um, I'm, I, I have a keynote uh, talk that goes with the film, and I'm actually doing it for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization um, next week. And I was just sort of finishing up my slides. And one of the things I realized is this is a public health crisis, Okay. It's a public health crisis like smoking, it's a public health crisis like lead poisoning, it's a public health crisis like domestic abuse. And why aren't we treating this issue like all the other public health crises? Why don't we have all sorts of PSAs and billboards on buses and on on highways? We should be sh- you know shouting from the rooftops that caregivers are struggling and 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 really really in need of help, especially As COVID has surged, I mean, we have seen, like every stress on a society, we see the vulnerabilities come out, and it's really, really happening right now. This is an urgent situation. It's got to be changed. The demographics of America are changing rapidly. More and more people are aging. People are living longer with chronic illness. You know, the rates of dementia will have doubled in the past 20 years. We we absolutely need to deal with this. Fewer and fewer people are available to take care of these care recipients who want to stay home and die at home and because families are dispersing. They're smaller. Um, so we've got an urgent public health epidemic, and we really need to think about how to address it the way we address all of our other po- public health crises. What's the but, answer? The answer? Raising awareness, putting it on the sides of a bus and a billboard, making people understand this is a silent epidemic that's killing people and it's causing terrible stress, and then putting you know in your figuring out how we can change things around within communities within places of work legislatively um you know from the federal state and local level what are the things that are important to us to do For, i think you know you can make individual change if you go up to somebody at your workplace who you know is a caregiver and put your arm on their shoulder and say how are you doing? That's one way to make a big difference. Another way to make a big difference is to call your congressperson and talk about what you think, uh, whether or not you think there should be uh, funding to support caregivers. Uh, There's an active conversation happening in Washington right now. This is a moment that could be generation changing around caregiver support. Um, Get educated about it. Learn about it. Learn what the bills are and the propositions are. There's a lot at stake here right now. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, some of the activity in Washington, because there is
2: there, you know, the most hopeful thing Ron and I've been doing the show for years and I've been in business for years. Is that there are conversations about caregiving, which in itself is amazing and unique and it is an opportunity um, and I had the privilege of serving on the raised family caregiver committee and I you're the first person when the report comes out with recommendations to the congress I'm going to send that to you <laughs> so that you know you can help share you know that here's a group of people that came together and are saying you know what you're saying about the public health crisis but the, but the question I want to ask you is you know you mentioned as a physician that seeing the caregiver was something that you had missed along the way that all of a sudden you know that you the caregiver came into focus how what do we do with our in partnership with the healthcare community to to help
3: the caregiver you know keep them from being invisible in that setting thank you for saying the word invisible because i um we have a couple of workshops that we have designed one for medical students one for medical residents and we're just designing one for hospice staffs around this film to raise awareness about family caregiver burden and in that presentation is the word, invisible patients. These are invisible patients. We, in the healthcare world, we see the patient. We think, oh, patient-centered care. That's that's the holy grail. We want to be caring about the patient. But the fact is, the patient is only as good as the family system around them. And what we do is we tend to really i mean quite frankly ignore the caregivers in fact during the pandemic we did caregivers weren't allowed in for reasons that are legitimate you know from a pandemic perspective but you know we have to be including the caregiver in in the entire plan of care we have to be noticing the caregivers. We need to be asking patients, who are your caregivers? Or don't use the word caregivers. Sometimes people don't identify them as caregivers. Who helps you get your medications? Who drives you to your appointments? You know what? We have to ask our patients if they are caregivers. You know what? Being being a caregiver may be the reason that they're sick. So we need to have a more full fledged understanding of the caregiver situation for our patients, whether again they are caregivers themselves or they have caregivers, and really try to figure out how best to support them. The hospital and the healthcare system in general is a caregiver magnet, right? There are going to be caregivers all over the place in the healthcare system. And so our job is to identify them. Number one. Number two, commend them for the work they're doing and recognize them for the work they're doing. That is huge. Right there is a big therapeutic impact that we can have. Number three, and most important, and we're not set up to do this yet, is to figure out how to connect those caregivers with the support that's out there in the society and community for them, in their local community, and you know whether it's national, but we've got to figure out how to transition that caregiver into going back out into the world with this new responsibility or this continued responsibility and figure out where to go and get the support that they need and deserve. All
2: right, so well, I wish we'd just that. <laughs> that. That could have been a little mini PSA right there.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
3: Right. But you know what? It's not just the healthcare system. The healthcare system is an important one because we think of a healthcare system as a place of caring for people and their well-being. right? So, but, but you know what? Places of work, 60% of caregivers work, most of them full-time and almost all of them have their work impacted by their caregiving responsibilities. And I think it's more than 90% of them feel unsupported in their workplace from the perspective of being a caregiver. So right there is another cultural shift that we can make. We can obviously, we've got to, employers have got to figure out a way to support caregivers more. Because not only, by the way, are the caregivers hurting in their employ, the employers are suffering. They're losing $65 billion a year in expenses from from lost work from their caregiver employees getting sick from their caregiver employees having to change or, or leave work and so they're losing so it's loose loose situation so if the employment world could figure out how to also support caregivers in a more robust way and improve the culture in that in that workplace to really elevate caregivers and make them feel confident about asking for the help that they need and deserve, then again, right there, we've got another big cultural change. So the third place that I think can really make a difference is communities. I mean, we talked about our synagogue. What about a church community? What about your neighborhood? If we know that there's a caregiver down the street, we can start, again, the basics just acknowledging them and elevating them for the work that they're doing as caregivers that's a big 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 piece changing the culture around what they're doing making them feel less alone and less isolated and then figure out how to organize in that community maybe it's setting up a church committee that cares about the caregivers in that church maybe it's setting up a neighborhood watch to support caregivers down the street i mean there are lots of things that we can do on a grassroots level personally i think ultimately well this is again controversial but like where is the main responsibility lie? Is it is it sort of organizing grassroots, organizing among families? Or is are local and state and federal governments also, uh, you know, responsible for helping out in some way? I would argue, yes, I know that's controversial. I know there's a lot of controversy around this issue. But I think people need to think about it and they need to think about how, you know, this is not an issue that's only going to affect poor people. It may disproportionately affect them, but it is going to affect Everybody, I don't care what your political party is. I don't care what the color of your skin is. This is going to impact us all. One in five Americans is a caregiver. And that's rising rapidly. So we... All right, we- Dr.
1: Zitter, I, I got to go back to something you said early on. Okay. Okay. Uh, when you said you really knew nothing about caregiving until you got involved in <laughs> this production. And now you are so incredibly passionate. When did it hit you that this is caregiving?
3: Oh, well, when did it hit me that this is caregiving? You mean in terms of the Rick story, or do you mean in terms of the fact that this is all around me? both? It, it was really interesting process to be editing a documentary. And realizing that the story I wanted to tell wasn't the one I originally set out to do. Because then what you have to do is all of a sudden you got to pull stuff up from the cutting room floor again and say, wait, the story I want to tell is about Rick. And that's a whole different story. So we had to kind of shift stuff around. And my co-director, Kevin Gordon, did an amazing job of piecing it together. But it, it was it was a really weird process of realization of Kevin and I talking and saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't think this story's about Bambi. And really reshuffling that. And then I then went off on this new learning uh, like as a doctor. Okay. There's one thing as a filmmaker, but now I'm like, I'm a doctor. I'm taking care of caregivers every day. I'm ignoring caregivers every day. I don't want to do that anymore. And so now there's just this whole, yes, I'm passionate because I'm realizing what has happened, what I have left undone around me all these years.
1: That is so cool. We got about a minute left. How do folks see the film? How do they see the trailer? How do they learn more about this?
3: Well, to see the trailer, go to Caregiver a Love Story trailer and make sure that you're. Sorry, there are a couple of different ones. Make sure you're watching the one that's a minute and 33 seconds. That's that's the one. You can go to caregiveralovestory.com. It's probably your best bet. That's our website. It's got the trailer on it and it also has a lot of strategies for how to watch the film. Uh, we have an educational distributor, Good Docs, that will allow libraries and hospitals and workplaces to stream it. Uh, we're going to be having a on PBS in the fall.
1: That's wonderful. Well, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's an incredible story. Thank you for your work. And we oh, uh, we really appreciate the chance to get to know you.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It really was wonderful.
1: Well, you take care. For Carol Zernial, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us on Caregiver SOS on air.